Now, we've been talking about being, an Im being imitators of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. If you are an imitator of God, literally in the Greek it means to mimic God, there's one premier aspect or characteristic thing that is reflective of the very nature of God that we are to imitate. What is that one thing? Love. We are to pe be people. If we're to be imitators of God, we are to walk in love. We are to live lives of love. What kind of love? Agape love. What kind of love is agape love? First time? Welcome. God bless you. It's good to have you with us. What kind of love? Yeah. See, everybody up there is answering. Now when I come back here, now everybody is. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to surprise you guys. One of these times, I'm going to move that camera off there and I'm going to preach from that platform and make you all turn your chairs around. I used to sit in the back so I know what the back row mentality is like. Safe. I can just sit here and hide. I don't have to engage that guy up there. I trick you. I come down here and talk to you. Eric, good to see you, brother. Agape love. Agape love is the kind of love that loves for the sake of giving or getting? Giving. giving. And giving unconditionally. No strings attached. It's not de dependent on the person who receives it. The person who receives it doesn't deserve it. Doesn't matter. I'm just going to give. Right? Amen. Right, Gary? Yeah. All right. Good to see you. Agape love. If you're imitating God, you're going to live a life of love. And a life of love always leads to what? Holiness. God wants us to be a holy people. He says in his word, you shall become holy because I am holy. What does holiness mean? It means set apart. It means set apart from sin, set apart to him and his purposes, his agenda. Holiness. You live a life of love. You're learning what that's like. You're stepping out. You're becoming more and more of a lover, agape lover. <laughs> you find yourself living more and more a life of holiness. You remember when uh, Jesus was interviewed by the, uh, the young lawyer? He came and he said, uh, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Trying to trick him. And Jesus' response was what? You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he says, the second commandment is like it. He shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he goes on and he says, and, and wrapped up in both of these commandments is the whole law and all the prophets. Everything is wrapped up in those two commandments. Why? When you're loving God with your whole heart, are you going to be sinning against him? No. Now, loving, it, it's an active kind of thing. You're doing it. You're loving God. You're thrown into that. You're invested in that. When you're invested in that, you're not invested in something else. And when you're loving your neighbor that same kind of way, are you sinning against your neighbor? No. no. So, literally, you are living a life of what? Holiness, aren't you? Imitate God. Live a life of love, and you'll be living a life of holiness. He goes on to describe some things 
that are characteristic of a life of holiness. He says, don't let there be any longer any hint of sexual immorality. Not the slightest hint of it. Be absolutely above reproach in your moral life, sexual life. He says, don't let there be anything impure, anything unclean, anything that would defile you. See, these things are characteristic of a holy life. He says, even watch what comes out of your mouth. What should come out of your mouth? Thanksgiving. Giving thanks. Not obscenity. Not coarse jesting. Not gossip. Not any of that kind of stuff. Thanksgiving ought to pour forth. And it will as you live a holy life. Now in the passage we're going to look at this morning from verses 8 through 14, Paul continues with this same theme. Except he's going to use the metaphors of light and darkness to talk about the same issues. How many have discovered that the Bible is redundant? That means it talks about the same thing over and over and over. Same issue, same story, same theme. How many have discovered I'm redundant? <laughs> I picked it up from Paul. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. It's the same issues. They're just dressed up in different clothes, packaged a little differently. This book is a statement of optimum redundancy. Same thing over and over and over and over and over and over. You see? And Paul's just going to tell us the same stuff. He's just going to couch it in different terms. He uses the metaphor of, of light and darkness to describe to us holiness, to describe to us who we are and how we should live on the basis of who we are. And we're no longer this, we're this. Therefore, we should live this way, not that way anymore. It's real simple, isn't it? Well, if it's so simple, why, is it, why are there thousands of pages on this? In tiny print, thin paper, several columns. Why? Well, I, just, I guess we need to hear it over and over, huh? So bear with. Listen. Part of imitating God is not only walking in love, in holiness, but it is the same thing, walking in light. Walking in light. I want you to read these verses with me, verses 8 through 14. Paul says some astounding things, and I'll point these things out as we go. He says... For you were once darkness, but now you are light, light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Underline that phrase. Underline verse 10. And find out what pleases the Lord, because we're going to talk about that. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. 
for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. That is why it is said, <coughs> and he adopts a passage from Isaiah chapter 16. He says, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's talk about this. If you look in a concordance, if you look up the words light and darkness, a concordance is a big, thick book that has every word in the Bible and all the places where it's listed. It's a wonderful study aid. But I looked up light, I looked up darkness, and I found a whole bunch of verses where all these words are listed. Far too many for us to talk about. But I picked out a few of them to kind of give us a feeling of, of God and, and what it means that God is light. In Psalm 27, verse 1, David says this, God is our light and our salvation. God is our light and our salvation. He is the source of everything that's true, good, right, holy. He is our light and our salvation. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19, I thought this was interesting. God is an everlasting light. He'll never go out. Isn't that nice? Several years ago, there was a God is dead movement in the church. God is not dead. He doesn't go out. No one can pull the plug on him. He is an everlasting light. His truth is everlasting. Indeed, in Psalm 119, verse 105, David, speaking of God's word, reflective of God's character and nature, he says that his word is a lamp to our feet, a light for our path. A light for a path. This is the, this is the manufacturer's handbook. You've all heard the saying, when all else fails... Read the directions. You ever put something together? You know, if you're, oh, I can do this. I don't need the directions. And you start putting it together. It doesn't work. You got some extra bolts and screws left over. So I wonder where these fit. Rather than when all else fails, read the directions. Let's rephrase that. Let's say before all else fails. <laughs> read the instruction manual. Find out how it works. God's the designer of life, is he not? And he's written a book. He says, this is how it works. Do it my way. Your life, your relationships, things will work out. They'll make sense. You'll have peace. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, listen to what John says. This is the message we have heard from him. This is the message that God has given us. And we declare it to you. God is light. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. There's no shifting shadow. God is not capricious. He's not whimsical. What he says, you can take it to the bank. It's solid. It never fails. In him there is no darkness at all. He says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, in other words, if we claim to be Christians, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. We're not telling the truth. We don't live by it. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship, not only with him, but with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
He's saying we have salvation. We have forgiveness. We have a no condemnation status with God. Walking in the light, consistently growing as a Christian is reflective of the fact that you are in fact a Christian. If you're not walking in the light, John is saying, quite simply, you lie, you're not a Christian. No matter what your words say. Your life is a testimony of what's true. So imitating God involves sharing in and also reflecting his light to this world. Now look at verse 8. This is very interesting. I want you to notice something. What does he say? He says, for you were once darkness. Notice he doesn't say you were once in the darkness, though that's true. He doesn't say you were once of the darkness, though that is true. He says you were darkness. You were darkness. Everything about you was dark. You were so intimately involved and affected by the darkness that you became darkness. You became darkness. You were darkness. Sin, you see, back in the garden, put the light out. Sin put the light out. And from that day forward, every single human being was born into the realm, the reign of darkness. Paul writes over in Colossians chapter 1 of that, that letter, verse 13. Boy, you ought to memorize this verse. Colossians 1.13. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his Son, whom he loves. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son, the kingdom of light. So, so Paul is using these two metaphors, darkness and light. He says, you were once darkness. Now, who's he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking, actually, to Christians, but he's talking to them about who they used to be. Ephesus, a city of gross idolatry and immorality in the ancient world. The center of pagan worship in Asia Minor. The temple to the goddess Artemis, or Diana, was there. Not a beautiful goddess, by the way. A, a vile, disgusting-looking idol. But the whole arena, all the worship in that temple was centered around immorality and sex. There were temple prostitutes, thousands of them, male and female. Homosexual, heterosexual sex was involved in their ritualistic practices. These were people who got saved out of that morass of evil and, and darkness. And now we're children of light. And Paul just reminds them. He says, this is who you were. This is what you were. You were darkness. You were darkness. What does darkness do to man? How does darkness affect man? It affects his entire being. It affects him rationally, intellectually. It affects him emotionally in his, in his heart and his affectations. 
It affects him in his will. Before I became a Christian, before I really got saved and got born again, intellectually, I was really ignorant about who God was, who he is. I had no real understanding of the nature of God. Oh, I believed in a God, but I couldn't describe him. I couldn't tell you anything about him. I had a perverted, very limited, narrow view of God. My understanding was dark. But not only that, my heart was hardened. You see, John says in in his gospel in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, men love the darkness. I love the darkness. While I said I believed in God, my life didn't reflect it. I love the darkness. Though I purposed and I said, well, I'm a good person. And I really believed, in spite of all the foolishness that I did, that I was basically a good person. I did some things that were bad, that were wrong, but I thought that I did more good than I did bad so that my more good would outweigh the bad. And if I did some bad things, then I went and hurry and did some good things to kind of make up for the bad things. And after all, everybody knows, and I certainly understood that God grades on the curve because all my teachers did. What I didn't understand was that God didn't grade on the curve. My understanding was dark. I didn't really know who he was or what he was all about. I didn't understand his holiness. I didn't understand his holiness. I was dark to that. I didn't understand the real meaning of life. I thought life was one big party. Let's go sing and dance and drink and smoke and fool around and go for the gusto. After all, we were young and virile. We'd live forever. Didn't realize we'd get old. Bodies would get slow down, get weak. Didn't understand the need for salvation. Didn't understand what that was all about. I want you to look with me at, just flip the page back, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This kind of gives you a picture of what it means to be the darkness. Ephesians 4, 17, Paul says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles or as the unbelievers in the futility of their thinking, vain thinking, dark thinking. He says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You're dark in your thinking because you're dark, you harden your heart. The hardening of the heart leads to greater darkening. Somehow, someone's got to break the cycle. And having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust or greediness for more. Now, obviously, he's speaking, he's taking it out to the extreme. But the point is, is that that man, being the darkness, is darkened intellectually, is darkened emotionally in his heart and in his will. Proverbs says, as a man thinks, so is he. How do you think? You think darkly? You're going to live darkly. And you're not going to know any different. 
You're going to think, this is the way it is. This is okay. And you're going to try to seize upon every opportunity to justify yourself as one who is the darkness. The darkness is the work in the domain of Satan, the devil. It's the work in the domain of Satan, the work and domain of the devil. If you're not a child of God, the Bible says you're a child of, guess who? The devil. Being the darkness is being in that domain, of that domain, a child of the devil. There's no in-between. There's no other spiritual heritage. Either you're spiritually dark or you're spiritually the light. Either you're a child of the devil or you're a child of God. It's black and white. That's what God tells people. That's what his word says. Let me read to you from John chapter 8. Jesus is involved in a discussion with uh, uh, the religious establishment, many of whom are his enemies. They're constantly dogging at his heels, trying to trick him to uh, find him in a way, in in a manner that they can kill him. And he finds himself embroiled in a controversy about their spiritual heritage. They're claiming, because they're Jews, strictly on the basis of their birth, to be children of Abraham, that Abraham is their father, but even beyond that, that God is their father. And he says to them in verse 41, you are doing the things your own father does. Now, he hasn't yet told them who, is, who their father is. He's going to bring, wait, wait till verse 44. And they say, they say, we are not illegitimate children. I mean, they protest. You know, it's very, very difficult for us, for me as a Christian, to imagine. I mean, I know I could only know this because the Bible tells me, but it's it's hard for me to relate to the to the decent, law-abiding, pleasant, wonderful, non-believer. It's hard for me to relate to that person as a child of the devil. I mean, they not be some vile, gross, murderous sinner as uh, as the the hillside strangler or some of these crazy people are. Obviously demonic. And so I look at this person, I say, boy, it is really hard to see this person. This is a child of the devil. And they would say that. If you were to say to them, you know that you're a child of the devil? Would they be pleased to hear that? No. No, that would kind of take them aback a little bit. And, And these people are protesting, no! The only father we have is God himself. Jesus goes on, he says, well, listen, if God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. He says, for I came from him and now am here. He says, I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Then he asks him a rhetorical question. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Why are they unable to hear what he says? Here it comes. You belong to your father, the devil. And not only that, you want to carry out your father's desires. You want to. You're compelled to. You're constrained to. Because that's your heritage. That's your nature. 
He was a murderer from the beginning. Hence, they wanted to murder him. And not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And all Paul tells us is that once you were the darkness, once you were a child of the devil, once you were a slave to the domain of sin and to the domain, the reign, the realm of Satan. You're immersed in it. You were it. You demonstrated it. You lived for it. That's what you were. That's what you were. The unbeliever is not only Satan's child, but the unbeliever is under his control and does his work. Does his work. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. Listen to what Paul says over in chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 12. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What's our struggle against? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Who's he talking to? The church. The unbeliever is under Satan's control and power. He's to be rescued from that domain. And Paul says, that's what you were. But now. But now. He says in verse 8. You're no longer that. But now you are light. You are light and you are light in the Lord. You're not light in and of yourself. You're light in the Lord. We've talked about what it means to be in Christ. To be united to Christ. To be part of Christ. And in Christ, I am light. John says in his gospel, chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus is the light of the world. And if I'm in Christ, then what's true of me? As he is the light of the world, I am light in him. In fact, Jesus says that himself in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. Don't hide your light under a basket. You're the salt. Go flavor the world. You were darkness, but now, he says, you are light in the Lord. Isn't that glorious? You know what it means to be under Satan's domain, one of his most destructive lies is this. It's the idea that a person apart from God is free. You know this idea, don't fence me in? If I become a Christian, my life will be a bummer. When I come to Christ, I have to give up everything. You see, the person who is in darkness... The person who is darkness, the person who's a child of the devil, who's a slave to the devil, is not free. But he doesn't know that. Because why? His understanding is dark. He has to be told. He has to be convinced. He has to be shown the effects of his thinking in his life and the effects of those around him. That's why Paul pleads with people. That's why he begs people. 
to listen, to pay attention. One of Satan's most destructive lies is that apart from God, you're really free. No. Apart from God, you're most in slavery. You're most in bondage. You're compelled to remain in the darkness. When a person comes to Christ, do they have to give up something? Absolutely. What do they give up? Slavery. They give up slavery to sin. They give up slavery to Satan. Jesus' own words are these. I came that you might be free. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Didn't he say that? You see how Satan keeps people deceived? And sadly, the church reinforces that too many times. Because the church represents bondage. The church typically, down through the centuries, has been a very legalistic organization. It's not been an alive organism. It's not been the vehicle of the grace of God exhibited to this culture. And so people shy away. I don't want any part to do with all that foolishness. You're most free when you're in the light. You're most free when you come to Christ. Apart from Christ, you're a slave. You're still darkness. And that darkness permeates every aspect of your being. And that darkness, beloved, by the way, brings God's punishment, His wrath. His wrath. God, because He is holy, He must judge that which is unholy. Otherwise, He's not God. Otherwise, He's not consistent with His nature. And so he's got to judge sin. He's got to judge everything that's un- unclean and unholy. And hence his wrath. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's revealing his wrath. And his wrath is directed at darkness. But that's not all. It doesn't end there. Darkness not only brings God's wrath, but darkness also leads to the ultimate destiny of eternal darkness. Eternal darkness. You know what hell is? You know, we have this caricature in our mind of hell. Some people, because we have cartoonists, worldly cartoonists who draw it and they make jokes about it, and devils, you know, with forked tails and pitchforks and ha, 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 and here's everybody at the, at the bar in hell, you know, thinking, well, you know, here we are all in hell together, drinking a Coors Light, a silver bullet. No, hell is much more serious than that. Let me think, let me describe to you what I think hell is about. Has anybody here ever been depressed? Not only depressed, but depressed to the point of despairing. Despairing. It's like you're, you're in a room and there's no windows, there's no doors, there's no way out. It's closing in on you. It is dark and there is absolutely no hope. And it's so real, so painful, and continues for so long. It is so dark 
that you begin to think irrationally, and some have even thought of ending it all by suicide. It doesn't matter the cause. Sometimes it's guilt, sometimes it's loss, sometimes some. But the point is, you've reached a point in your life where you've just, you're just despairing. You'll do anything to stop the pain, the grief. You know what I'm talking about? Imagine that. That kind of pain, that kind of despair, that kind of emptiness magnified by a factor that you and I can't relate to, multiplied by a thousand, thousand, thousand times. Eternal darkness. You can't quench it. It's absolutely dark all around you. There's nobody else, no other being you will ever see or hear from ever again. Lost forever. Unable to quench the pain of it all. Pain enveloping you every single second for the rest of your existence. That is so awful. That is so incomprehensible to us that some theologians have developed a doctrine of annihilation. That means that people who are lost will they'll have a certain degree of punishment, but then after that they just go out of existence. That it can't go on interminably. It does. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Lost. Consciously aware of every twinge of the pain. Nothing you can do about it. Totally alone. No light at all. Dark. And you know what I think is the worst part? I think that those people will also be consciously aware that there was a point way back in time when they could have done something about it. And in a sense, forever, they'll be kicking themselves. Why didn't I listen? Which only adds to the anguish. I mean, even with that description, I think it's totally inadequate to describe the eternal destiny of darkness. Reserved for those who are disobedient. Reserved for those who are willing to remain dark. But not so the church. He says, but now you are light. You are light in the Lord. He says, therefore, live as children of light. Live as children of light and bear fruit. And he describes the fruit. There's four aspects, four characteristics, four, four kinds of fruit that will be demonstrated in our lives as we live this kind of life. They're overlapping. They're global, general kinds of things. But let me just quickly describe them to you. If you've been called out of the darkness, as Peter says, and you're living in the wonderful light of Jesus Christ, then your life should be characterized by these things. Goodness. Goodness. Now, there's, there are three or four words in the Greek text, in the Greek language, that mean good or goodness. Paul picks out a very specific word. The word is agathos. That's the root word. 
That means, the, 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 the core meaning of agathos is moral excellence. The, your life should be reflected by moral excellence, goodness, goodness. Goodness in nature, goodness in effectiveness, moral excellence. Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Agathos, same word. Overcome evil with moral good. Stand for what's right. In fact, the next word is righteousness. Live rightly. Live rightly. Your life should be characterized not only by goodness, but by righteousness. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Paul tells Timothy, pursue righteousness. Run after it. Pursue it. This picture of vigorous running after righteousness. Right living. Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. You ought to memorize that passage. 6, 12 through 14, Romans. Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body any longer so that you'll obey its evil desires. He says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the instruments of your body, the parts of your body, as instruments of righteousness. Righteousness. What is right? The third quality is truth. Goodness, righteousness, truth. If you're living as a child of light, these things are going to be reflected in your life. Truth. Truth. Truth has to do with honesty, reliability, trustworthiness, integrity. In contrast to the hypocritical and deceptive and false ways of the old life in darkness. Are you a person whose word can be counted on? Are you reliable? Or do you waffle back and forth? Do you say one thing but mean another? Do people never have a handle on you? Are you slippery? Are you moving in and out? Or do people know where you are? Do they know what you stand for? Are you trustworthy? Are you a person of integrity? Will you do what's right no matter the cost? If you're a child of light and you're living in the light, yes, you will. Yes, you will. Goodness, righteousness, truth. There's a fourth quality. This is tremendous. In addition to those things, you'll be a person who is growing in the desire to know what pleases him. God, I want to know what pleases you. Your prayers will be marked by that more and more and more. The desire of your heart, more and more and more. What pleases you? You know, if you read the Gospels, several places throughout the Gospels, Jesus, the Gospel writers have Jesus saying these th things like this. I do only that which the Father does. These words I speak, I speak not on my own, but I speak them because the Father has given me them to speak. You know what I'm talking about? Now, most of us have read that. Most of us have heard those preached on. Most of us have a comprehension, understanding of what Jesus is saying and meaning. 
But you know what? In my own life, for years, I've, I've read that and believed that. But just of late, since our last fast, God has brought those words, he's brought that reality home to my life more profoundly than ever before. I want to know what you're doing. Father, show me what you're blessing. I want to participate in your agenda. So many times I have my own agenda and I say, oh yeah, by the way, God, would you bless my agenda? And most of the time my agenda is not his agenda. But I'm learning to sit back. I'm learning to say, Lord, I want to spend some time with you and I want to find out what you're doing. I want to find out what your agenda is. I want to find out what pleases you. And I want to do only those things that please you. I want to be a man after your heart. I want to be a man after your heart. That requires that we spend some time with him, huh? How much time did Jesus spend with his father? Lots. Got up early in the morning. Everybody else was still sleeping. Sometimes spent the whole night on the mountain in prayer. You know what? And God talked to him. His father talked to him, instructed him, told him what to do. He says, now listen, when you get down into, into the town tomorrow and you pray for that guy that's blind, I want you to spit on his eyes. How did Jesus know to do that? Did he just think it up on himself? No, he did only those things that the Father told him to do. You watch how Jesus healed people. He did things that, you know, we wouldn't think to do. And make some mud. Make some mud, make some dirt. He says, all right, now put this on your eyes. Now go run down to the pool and wash it off. We'd say, oh, Lord, Lord, heal this person's eyes. Be healed. We want some simple method that applies to all cases, don't we? But God is incredibly creative. He doesn't just give us one little method. He says, you know, you come to me, you spend time with me, I'll tell you what to do, and I'll tell you how to do it. If you're a person who is light in the Lord, if you're a person who is walking as a child of light, you're going to be a person who is more and more and more and more and more consumed with wanting to know what pleases him. And you'll be spending time with him to find out what that is. You know, when you pray, always pray with your Bible open. Always pray with your Bible open. You say, but that takes time. That's the point. That's the point. Pray with your Bible open. Find out what pleases him. Are we doing that? Some. And then he says this. Oh, I love this. Have only a little bit to do with deeds of darkness. Nothing. What? Nothing. How much? Nothing. nothing. Is he serious? Does he really mean that? Does he really expect that we have nothing to do with deeds of darkness? Or is he just saying, you know, here's the ideal. I know that you guys can slip or slide around in the muck. What's his intention? His intention is that we have nothing to do. If you are a child of light, have nothing to do with deeds of darkness. You have to absolutely say no more. Period. I know what you're thinking. But that's impossible. <laughs> that's so hard. Yeah. Only Jesus could do that. 
Oh, let me show you a verse. Why don't you turn back to the Old Testament? First Kings. This will blow you away. You've never seen this. First Kings, chapter 15. First Kings, chapter 15, page 360. You're welcome. First Kings, chapter 15. I want you to read verse 5 with me. Boy, I hope this blows your way like it has blown me away. For David, speaking of David, David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. How often did David blow it in his life? One time. Is it possible to not have anything to do with deeds of darkness? Yes, apparently. Because we have the Holy Spirit. We have a brand new nature. We are the light. Walk as children of the light. Don't have anything to do with deeds of darkness. But rather, he says, ignore them. Bury your head in the sand and pretend like they don't exist. Keep quiet about them. Don't upset the apple cart. What does he say? Expose them. Whoa, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Expose them. That's right. Expose them. Beloved, listen to this. To ignore evil. To ignore evil is tantamount to encouraging it. To keep quiet about evil is to literally help promote it. When good men say and do nothing, evil triumphs. Evil triumphs. What's the church to do? The church has a twofold purpose to make disciples. To make disciples. What does that include? That includes, as I'm making a disciple, I'm to have nothing to do with deeds of darkness and I'm to expose evil. I'm to be an instrument of God in this life. Not that I'm to be self righteous, self righteously judgmental, prideful, or arrogant, but I, my life is to expose evil. How do I do that? Two ways. First, indirectly. And most of you can relate to this. You live your life, your workplace, your neighborhood, friends, family, so forth, people who are not believers around you. They know you're a Christian. They know what you stand for. You probably had this happen, maybe at work. Someone slips. They, they, they curse. They say, oh, excuse me. I didn't see you there. Why do they say that? Because you're standing there. Why, why, why are you? Because your life is a testimony. Especially if you're living it. Especially if you're living it. A girl came to me last night, on Friday night after the service, and she said, she says, you know, I, 
none of my friends include me with them at, at work, and you know they all go out and they and they, they never invite me to come along. And she said, and I asked one of them, I said, why? How come you guys never include me? And her girlfriend was very, very upfront with her, and she says, well, you know, we like to smoke and drink and cuss and talk dirty, and you don't do that kind of thing. So when we're around you, we feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> Her life is exposing evil. She doesn't have to say anything about it. It's just exposing evil. But not only are we to do it indirectly, we're to do it directly. We're to say, that's wrong. That's wrong. That ought not to be. But sadly, there's a lot of evil happening today. And there are not, there are not enough people who are standing up and saying, that's wrong. The church is not exposing evil. And you know why? There are two very fundamental reasons. First of all, for, for a lot of people in the church, their lives are not in order. Their own lives are not in order so that they have the discernment, the inclination, and the power to expose evil. And secondly, they don't take evil seriously. They bury their head in the sand. Or, worse yet, they secretly enjoy evil. You know, I had a family call me this week. Tragic. People have been Christians for years, professed to love the Lord. The wife had gone away for a few days to visit her family, come back a day early, caught her husband with an X-rated porno movie. Devastated her devastated her. And he justified all up and down. He said, well, you know, I just, well, did this little dance. Secretly enjoying evil. She can't trust him. He's living a lie. It's one thing to forgive. It's a whole other thing to trust, isn't it? Beloved, we are to expose evil. We're to take it seriously, and we're to live our lives in such a manner that we do have the discernment. We do have the inclination, the will, and the power to expose it. Would you willingly expose your family, your friends, people you know, if you knew that there was a deadly virus out in the hallway... And someone sitting next to you didn't know it, but you knew about it. Would you let them go out in the hallway? No, you'd expose it, wouldn't you? Or if there were toxic fumes and chemicals out there, they didn't know. You'd say, oh, don't go out there, don't go out there, you'll die. You'd do everything in your power to stop them from being exposed, right? You'd expose the truth of that deadly stuff. Why not also deeds of darkness, the evil? Let me read to you. A little quote from a Christian activist. He's speaking, and he's saying, what if in the year 1959, 30 years ago, what if in 30 years, <clears throat> he said, someone, 30 years ago, someone stood in an American pulpit and declared these things. In 30 years, 
we will have murdered 25 million children in the most barbaric ways imaginable. Who would have believed him? What if he were to have declared, we will be, de we will be killing in 30 years handicapped newborns and unwanted elderly people? It's happening. What if he would have declared, in 30 years, prayer and Bible reading will be illegal in public schools? What if he had declared, in 30 years, homosexuals will be marching in the streets and mayors in prominent cities will be declaring Gay Pride Week? Who would have believed him? What if he, he had declared, we will have a terrifying plague known as AIDS. Christian schools and home schools will be harassed by the government. Christianity, and only Christianity, will be mocked on television. That Hollywood would produce a blasphemous movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. Who would have believed him? What if he had said, in 30 years, pornography, the debasing of women and children will be rampant. And children by the hundreds will be kidnapped and murdered in snuff films. Who would have believed him? What if he had said, in 30 years we will have government scandals beyond belief. Hundreds of thousands of homeless people. A cocaine crisis that is threatening the very security of our nation, the very fabric of our society. What if he had said, in 30 years, our school officials will be advocating that our second and third graders ought to be taught about condoms and anal sex? you would say you're crazy. No one would believe him. But guess what? Guess what? Every one of those things that I just mentioned are rampant in our society today. Beloved, the church is asleep at the switch. The church is fiddling while Rome burns. The church has buried its head in the sand. The church is more concerned with personal peace and prosperity than it is in being light in the world. Amen. That's why Paul says this, wake up, O sleeper. It's a call to repentance not only for those who are still the darkness, but it's a call for those who are sleeping in the church, in the congregation. Wake up! Get with it! You say you're the light? Walk in the light! Quit fooling around. Have nothing to do with deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. What are you investing your life in? 
Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Something to think about? Lest you think I'm joking, let me read to you from Ezekiel chapter 3. There are parallel passages. Don't turn there. Just let me read it to you. There are parallel passages in Ezekiel 18, 33, 17, and so forth. The word of the Lord came, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. Shall we pray?